This podcast is part of the How We Are Network. For information on this episode and many other like-minded shows, visit howweare.org. That's H-O-W-W-E-A-R-E dot O-R-G. Greetings and salutations, everybody. You are listening to 100 Words or Less, the podcast, and I am your host, Ray Harkins, eternally grateful for you hanging out with us, with me, and with my guest this afternoon, evening, whenever you are listening to it. I'm recording this on the morning of June 20th, which is actually the day that I go to Warp Tour. For those of you that don't know what Warp Tour is, first of all, get out from under that rock. I, I think this is my, I want to say 14th or 15th year in a row. It's one of those things where every year I'm like, oh, I don't know, like maybe there's not a reason for me to be there in regards to my professional working life. And there always is. There's always a reason to be there. Honestly, at the end of the day, I enjoy it. It's fun. It's fun to be able to see some friends all kind of in a concentrated area. Granted, it's usually hot as hell. Today, I'm going to Pomona, which is going to be, I think, in the mid to high 80s. So I need to put some sunscreen on and make sure I don't die. If you are sweating in the sun currently as you are listening to this, I empathize with you. I feel what you are going through because I am going through that today. The guest this week is Sean Ingram. He is the vocalist for a band called Coalesce, which if you have not been listening to in June, I have been having people on the show that I define as legendary luminaries, people who are highly influential within the context of independent music and more specifically punk, hardcore, whatever you want to call it. Let's get some business out of the way first, and then we will talk about Sean and Coalesce and how awesome that's, that, that band is and how great of a dude he is. Anyways, so for those of you that paid attention to the month of May, it was a huge fun drive. Uh, I defined it as successful. I mean, if someone gave five dollars i would have been like cool that's successful thank you very much i appreciate it granted i had high expectations and honestly those weren't met but i was shooting for the stars uh i'm glad that we landed on the moon so i'm very very pleased to thank some of these people jacob ray he is a person who donated so graciously to the show at a contributing rate of uh i can't remember how much because that's irrelevant but he said every month I will be giving you this money, and I really, really, really appreciate that. So thank you, Jacob. Trevor Barrett, Barrett? I'm butchering your last name, and I apologize. But uh, you've been interacting with the show a lot recently, and I am pumped on Facebook, on Twitter. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Thank you for giving a crap about what is being put out there. And uh, yeah, for those of you that are also interested, the donation link is on the right side of the page of the website, 100wordspodcast.com. I put up a donate button for people who are just like, hey, I can't give you money each month, but I just want to give you like a lump sum donation. No joke. And this is someone I would be thanking in a later episode. Someone gave $100. I couldn't even believe that someone would do that. It's just, I don't know. It gives me warm fuzzies because after all, this thing is free and you vote with your dollar. So basically what I'm saying is that, so if you are deciding to go to a movie, that is you investing in that movie. As much as you might not think that, oh, just whatever, I'm paying to see a movie, I'm doing something, but that is a choice. And so for people who give money to this show in order to make it better, I'm internally grateful. Donate is all I'm saying. There's an option for those of you who are like, I, I can't do this every month. Visit 100wordspodcast.com. Check out the right side of the page. And there's buttons. There's a button you can donate. Super simple. Propertyofzack.com. Great media partners. Visit them. Review the show. Visit the website as well. And you can see, the, I, I think I put up a link somewhere where you can review the show. But regardless, go to iTunes. You can drop some stars, say some nice things. People have been doing that recently. And I love to get that feedback. And it's really nice because people, generally speaking, leave us the show five stars. And that's awesome. So the more rankings that we get, the more professional we look, the easier it is for guests to understand that, oh, oh, this thing's legit. It's not just like some, you know, it's not just Ray doing this little cute thing in the corner by himself. So anyways, that is that is the thing. So do that. And email the show, 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I've been having a lot of great discussions about guests and 
just other random topics of conversation. I don't care when you listen to these episodes. Like I got an email from someone who was like apologetic that they are listening to an episode that got released in February. I'm like, I don't give a shit. It's awesome. Like whatever I said back then is more likely than not still relevant, still talk aboutable. Don't don't feel bashful. If you're listening to this months and months, even years after the fact, email the show. It's fine. I'll be doing this forever. Hopefully, maybe. So Sean Ingram. Like I said, the vocalist for the band Coalesce and Coalesce, there's a kind of a Mount Rushmore as far as like sort of metallic hardcore bands are concerned. And honestly, they Coalesce would probably belong on there. It like Converge is another band, Dillinger Escape Plan, arguably so. And then they're all like you can go a million different directions with it. But anyways, but Coalesce and Converge, I mean, those are like absolutely monumental bands that pushed the boundaries of what hardcore and metal were and especially sean ingram like his voice is so distinctive and what he did with that and the band just really um you know it, it was challenging in so many respects like i remember not understanding coalesce for a long period of time like i remember giving getting give them rope which is a seminal release from them and i just i listened to it and i was like i don't get it man and this is when i was maybe about 17 18 years old, maybe. So I just didn't, it could not compute. Uh, later on, I got into them. And after I saw them live, I was like, okay, I really get what they're doing. But Sean has uh, started a successful business. He runs a company called Blue Collar Distro. They do a lot of online merch stores. They print a lot of merch and other goodies for bands and comedians. And he's, he's been able to parlay his knowledge within the context of his band into a career, which is awesome. So he decided to take some time out of the day, speak to me over Skype, and uh, yeah, just couldn't couldn't be more. I get. I mean, I hate to say down to earth because like I didn't expect him to be anything but that. But uh, yeah, he just says something really compelling that kind of hit me towards the tail end of our interview. So listen to that, see if you can pick up on that, and I will talk to you after we are done. So uh, I want to say it was uh, let's see let's let's take you back to uh, 1998. I want to say, okay. I, I think that is when you guys were touring with uh, Today Is the Day, and you played Showcase Theater in Corona, California. Here, because I'm, I'm based in, based in Southern California. So I ditched out on a biology final. Uh, but when I say ditched out, I mean like I didn't study for it. I didn't care about it because you guys were playing with Today Is the Day, and that was my first time because I. The, pro- the the couple times before when you guys came through, and I, I think you played Coos Cafe before that. Yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, it was, I had just missed starting getting into music by a year or two. I wasn't a metal kid. I was a hardcore kid. And so, like, showing up at Today is the Day show being like, huh, this is weird. Like, what's happening with uh, – I mean, I, I, I see the reason why Coalesce is touring with – a band that is heavy and loud but i was that was like one of the first shows where i distinctly remember being like huh there's two types of people that go to shows like i could see the the kind of hardcore kids and i could kind of see the the, the metal kids yeah yeah because <laughs> you guys never really in my mind and i mean to, to correct me if i'm wrong you guys never really made that full uh full quote-unquote crossover to where yeah you picked up i'm sure a few people from doing tours like that but that stuff all happened way after us just the notion that you could be in a band like coalesce um and make a living at it was just so absurd at the time so when like after 99 and we started seeing other bands like on tv and stuff mtv and things like that it just kind of blew our minds that um someone was able to monetize it because in our mind you know that that kind of music would never be monetized so that was you know never the goal you just did it because you love it um as far as like the full crossover thing our whole thing was like especially with our splits and everything we just always wanted to be associated with all sorts of people i mean that's why we did a split with get up kids gosh there's another i can't remember the name of the band off the hand but the it was on Hydrohead Records. Boys It's Fire. Yeah, Boys It's Fire. Sorry. That's, <laughs> That's terrible. Right. I can't remember the band's name. But we did split with them. But we also did a split with Napalm Death. So, like, to us, we just we wanted to be associated with, like, all sorts of different things. To us, like, I think music, that, like, the whole hardcore scene, like, the straight-edge hardcore scene and that type of stuff, that wasn't us. And that wasn't where we came from as a band. I mean, I was – I came from that. But uh, 
but the other guys did not, you know. So I think they always wanted to be known more as like a like an AMREP type band uh-huh. rather than the type of like hardcore and metal that we got into, or I guess what people associate us with and such. But as far as like seeing the, the different groups of people, yeah, I think we did towards the end there. But, um, man, you have to realize it's like, you know, 20, maybe 100 people would come out to those shows back then. You know what I mean? So it's like, we're happy to see any people, you know? So I didn't, you know what I mean? Yeah, no. That was like like kind of towards when, um, uh, it was kind of like, you know, towards like, you know, the chicks up front thing was happening at that time and everything, you know, the red girls and all that type of stuff. You know what I mean? So it's like, I think back then, I think people were more vocal about wanting to see girls at shows rather than like, the type of scene you were from, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, it wasn't open forum and everyone was welcome. So, um, but, but I do know what you're talking about, but I think that all totally happened after us. Cause see, we broke up in what, 99 uh-huh. and then did something in O2 and from 99 to O2 was the difference between, you know, like $50 a show to multiple thousand dollars a show because the scene had just exploded. It was just wide open. Unfortunately, we missed like a lot of the, like the, the, the bigger shows and the hype and the stuff like that. However, we did get to play that amazing um, fest that Scion put on. Yeah. And, and Atlanta, which is like one of the most insane things ever. They like flew all these totally weird death metal, metal bands and like, like from who knows God knows where they pull these people in. Yeah, no, I actually I I flew out to that. I saw you guys at that, and because yeah, that was like an amazing show, and there was so much going on. But like, I remember right before our show, uh, I went to go use the restroom, and there was some band that like I know they signed spent thousands of dollars getting these guys over there, and there were seriously like ten people watching them because there's so much craziness going on. That you know, in our mind, that festival would be packed everywhere, but it really was like a mass migration. Converge is playing, let's go. Neurosis is playing, let's go. It was just like this herd of people, as you, I'm sure you probably remember since you went there. I mean, especially like in watching the the ten year lapse of time between when you guys you know stopped actively touring and then started to do the spot dates, which you guys did, which you guys obviously continued to do now. It is one of those things where it's like, now it's obviously common for people to, you know, listen to basically every style of music possible, just because it's like, I I think there's just like two different classifications. There's like uh, independent music and kind of everything else. And Mm -hmm. (laughs) there's no, there's no delineation between that. No one gives a shit about um, you know, the, the, the huge divisions that obviously were created when the scene was like still trying to figure itself out. <laughs> yeah. And and there's just so much music. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much, God damn, when MySpace, you know, first blew up, I remember just looking at all those bands, it's just like, you don't have to do anything to be in a band anymore. You just got to start up, just got to start a page, you know, hope someone discovers you, you know what I mean? There's no getting out on the road. And it's like, there was so much noise. I remember looking through it, it was just like, how can you possibly even stand out? Now, back in the 90s, like in 93, 94, when we first started, there was a lot of hardcore bands, but there were not thousands of hardcore bands. You know what I mean? It wasn't it wasn't the same kind of thing. So um, we chat about that every once in a while. We're curious if it's just the technology, you know, with the with uh, the Macintosh and, you know, or the, the PC software and stuff as that's happened. Because, again, you know, when we were doing that back in the day, there was no... Uh, internet there were no cell phones um we had dialers you know that you put up against the thing you know for long distance calls and we had you know maps <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah like yeah, at- atlases yeah exactly so like so i feel like technology really did change a lot of that and i feel like it really opened up gosh just 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 a insane amount of bands and an insane amount of genres you know what i mean and like even hearing you say you know metal and hardcore it's like there's now like multiple like versions of hardcore yeah. Oh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, and you know there's like at least 15 types of metal right. you know what i mean whereas like even back then it was like metal hardcore you know yeah um, when we when we first did that first seven inch on the uh, single series for eric records our entire thing was that you know we wanted to be on a, on a metal label just because we wanted to it was different and um I remember Scott from uh, Love That being like, dude, you're like the first one to do this. This is amazing. And it's like, it means nothing today because it's like you have metal labels that are doing all sorts of stuff like that. You know what I mean? And, yeah. And vice versa, you know? Well, yeah. Uh, no, the, the years that I worked at Century Media Records, it was one of those things where, 
where I, because I, mean, I started working there in like around 2002, and it was one of those things where we kept in touch with the Turmoil guys, and it was the same sort of idea where it's like they had no, they had no place being on that label, and no one at the label had any idea what to do with that band. It was only until, like you said, it was years later where it was like, oh, I guess I get where they're coming from now, as opposed to like, oh yeah, we're, what are we doing in '97? Who fucking yeah. knows? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I remember Turmoil was definitely one of the one of the big ones too. You know, that was on Century Media. Were they the first hardcore band in Century Media? You had random ones like Rikers from Germany. Um, you you had ones that didn't really make an impact here in the states. Between Turmoil and like Only Living Witness, those were kind of the uh, the bands that were like, oh, this isn't kind of your typical long hair metal, so to speak. Yeah, you hit the point in regards to the low barrier of entry. Once people had more of an access to stuff, that's obviously what propagated millions of bands existing. The notion that I always find so quaint and telling of that time frame too is that you know even even in the the later 90s like i started going to shows whatever around 96 or so so i i did, i only had pictures of bands that existed either in zines or obviously on layouts so it's like you guys for example it's like i only had a very very vague knowledge of what you looked like and then when you guys show up i'm just like Oh, so that's what they look like. Like, you know, yeah. a bunch of yeah. b- bunch of dweeby looking guys. Like, okay, I get it. I remember that. I remember the first time I saw a picture of the Bad Brains. I was like, wait, they're black? I didn't know that. <laughs> you know? And yeah, no, no, you're totally right. And then, especially like not, like, uh, tell me if you used to do this. Uh, oh, uh, I'm, I'm looking for a new band. So I'm going to look at the thinks list on the band that I am, that I, my, my current favorite band. Yep. And that's how we found all those other bands. You know what I mean? It's like, that was, that was it. The thinks list was like so important, yeah. you know, to, to figure out like who was in the same genre because there was no way. If, I didn't live in New York, right. you know? So I didn't, I don't, I don't know who any, who the, any of those people are, you know, I don't talk to anybody over there. There's, there's no, I mean, that thinks list was like the closest to like, you know, an advertisement of what's cool. You know what I mean? Totally. And that was, I remember that being a really big deal when we stopped doing thanks lists on Call S Records. I remember having that conversation with Jess. And I was like, dude, the internet, okay, it's over. <laughs> People find their own bands. You know what I mean? It just seems so silly. Yeah. It seems silly having a thanks list now with like a bazillion bands on it and stuff. It's like, but back then that was so important because they're like, please put me on your thanks list, you know, Ray Capo or whoever, because, I, you know, Joe Schmo and, you know, Kansas City, Missouri to buy my record totally. and, and experience me too, you know? No, totally. And I, I remember how important it was. And it still is to a certain extent. If you get up on stage and you, you know, Coalesce is going to play a show. If you, Sean, decide to wear a, a you know, whatever, a Neurosis t-shirt, that advertisement of that endorsement is like ringing. You're like, oh, dude, I've never heard of that. But what the, what's that shirt he's wearing? What's that? Yeah. What's that thing? I, I got to find still- out. That still exists today. I sent a link on. I was. Uh, I have a. I have a fake Facebook account that I uh, do marketing on for this bike project that I do. Okay. And uh, one of the one of the guys for some reason that I added, he liked um, some new supergroup with members of Mastodon. Oh yeah, Killer Killer Be Killed. I think. Yeah, Killer Be Killed. Yeah, that's the one. And the Dillinger Escape Plan guy, the the new singer or the the singer <laughs> of Dillinger Escape Plan, he had Portishead shirt on. Uh-huh. And I'm looking at 300 comments from this band sucks to, you know, take all my money or, to, you know, or someone pimping their own stupid band that, you know, mm-hmm. he recorded himself. And then, but the biggest comment on that whole thing when Mastodon posted that was, cool shirt. I love this shirt. You know what I mean? And then going on, like, I'm going to check it out now. It's like, seriously? Right. It's 2014, you know who Portis is? <laughs> Like super, super insane, and I think this port. I'm pretty sure Porter said who is who was on it, but um, yeah. But you know, it was the. I think it also too was the contrast between like you know how heavy a band that is, or, or how how rocking the band is versus like how austere you know Porter said is in in comparison. But, yeah. Um, no, for but, sure. But yeah, no, that totally reminded me of that because I remember looking at that and just being like, that is the most so insane. I ended up just skimming the whole section, looking at the comments, you know, and like you know, of what people say. And I was also surprised too, like how it seems like lately, I don't know if this is true or not. Maybe it's not. I hope it, I hope it's true, but it seems like the whole, like everyone's a troll on the internet, uh, on any kind of musical thing, any kind of music, uh, you know, band coming out or, or new mm-hmm. project. It seems like it's like really toned down a lot too. Cause I remember being on Lamgo. 
oh. and, you know, like car flip, maybe, whatever, all the whole <laughs> thing, you know, that they would do. I remember just like, it was just like a contest to see how like ruthless and just like horrible you could be to people, yep. you know? And so I just checked out of it. Like in, I guess it would probably be 08. I just checked out and I, I didn't want anything to do with any of it, you know, cause it didn't make me feel good, you know, Even, whether it's directed at me or somebody else, it's just, you know, I don't like it, so I don't, I don't, I don't need that in my life, and so I just left it behind. So seeing that now, after not looking at those types of blogs and stuff, I was really surprised. Are you seeing that too, or do you think people are are still, you know, out to destroy everybody's creativity, no matter? Yeah, no matter what. No, no, that's that's a very good question. I think it just it proliferates it, just because there's so many places in which you can share your. Uh, opinion from that perspective. I mean, I think that the lowest common denominator would be looking at like YouTube comments. I think that's where <laughs> I, I think you could look at the, the correlation between people that are, po- that were posting on lamb goat that, you know, it, it would be the amount of hate that's poured on something for every, you know, 20 negative comments, you have one positive comment, but yeah, I just think it's like it proliferated all over the internet. So it's like, maybe we just don't see it in one concentrated area. You maybe think about something uh, else in regards to, you know, kind of like the, not, not, not the origin story of coalesce, so to speak, but like, you know, you, I mean, it's been well-documented and you've spoken about it in many interviews in regards to the uh, experience that you had, obviously. Uh, did you move from Kansas city to Syracuse and then back to Kansas city? Oh, yeah, I don't think I've actually ever talked about that. Um, yeah, because I don't know, like, I don't know where you were born and raised. Like, it's one of those things where it's like... Well, yeah, Kansas City, and then I, as a kid, I lived in Norman, Oklahoma, and then we moved back here to Kansas City, and then um, was actually put in school a year early, so I graduated when I was uh, 17. Okay. As soon as... My parents were going through a divorce, and as soon as as soon as soon I was done with school, I was just basically like, like I'm out of here. I, okay. I want out of here. I don't want to be here. There was... I can't remember. I think it was Holocaust Magazine. Jen and Chris, I think is... Uh, I think that's their names. But they... It was 127 Harvard Place. It was across the street from 129, which was uh, from Guave Conviction Records, who put out the first uh, Earth Crisis 7-inch. Yep. And... Um, you know, and just through zines and write, like literally writing handwritten letters with stamps and everything to these people, I just kind of befriended them and stuff. I was like, hey, look, I'm just looking to move. And they're like, well, we have a room. It's this much. I was like, well, shit, that's as good a place as anywhere. <laughs> so, um, I, like, I remember it was the day after Christmas. Uh, actually, I think it was Christmas Day. Uh, <laughs> I just packed all my, I was like, all right, I'm out. Packed everything up, and I just drove there overnight and got a job at um, Office uh, Office Max. Oh yeah, and just went to as many shows as possible. Um, it was a really interesting experience, you know. I would do it again if I if I could go back in time. I wouldn't tell myself not to do it because I learned a lot from that experience, especially like how to deal with people, how to deal with extremes, right? And um, and just honestly, just how to deal with yourself and you know, and just like your job and, and like a career and like planning for family, you know, and like getting a life plan, you know. I think that was. I think that was one of the darkest times of my life, not because of straight edge or shows or a uh, job or anything, but the, there, there was no, there just was no future. There was no plan. There was just no nothing. Mm-hmm. There was, there were no roots, you know, and that was like, uh, I didn't realize how important that was. Uh, I'm sure for some people it's no big deal, but for me, I just couldn't move someplace anywhere and um, make a go of it. You know, it's like, I, you know, like I, I had to have those roots, you know, and family support stuff. Uh, I was out there for, um, I want to say four months, maybe. Oh, geez. And, uh, that, like, that's not a very, uh, not, way, not long at all. Yeah. Not the way that, the way that you were speaking about it definitely made it sound like, you know, it was like maybe a good year or two before you realized how, how low it got. No, 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 no. I was out, I was only out there probably, um, yeah, probably about four months and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I just, I didn't have my act together, you know, and, and, you know, I mean, I was living over with a bunch of hard line, uh, you know, vegans. <laughs> you right, know? right, right. Literally read the ingredients list on, you know, or, or read anything on the back of, you know, when I come home with my groceries to make sure that I'm, you know, You're eating okay. enough and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's real. It, it was just real wild. It's just, it was just a very oppressive type of thing, you know, um, that I got myself into. And it was my own fault because that's, I mean, I can't fault them. You know, they didn't, they didn't misrepresent themselves. They were Syracuse hardline vegan people, you know, <laughs> so it's, it's my own fault. I thought that was me. I was 17, you know, it's like, this is what I wanted to be, you know, it's like, look, I want to, you know, I want to be socially conscious, you know, I care about the animals. I, you know, all this whole thing, you know, it's like what I want to be a part of, you know, so I threw myself into it 100%. 
but it just it just did where it wasn't me you know I, I discovered really quickly that that was not the type of environment for me so um, I did move back to Kansas City um, and then it was weird because almost like the day I came back I went to a coalesce show when they had like a different singer it was a different band but it was essentially coalesce and uh, and it was just like okay Sean's back so he's joining the band let's go you know what I mean? And it was like, a, that was like kind of a real surreal experience too, because it felt right when I got home, all the pieces fit immediately as soon as I got home, whereas everything was jumbled and, um, you know, a lot of hurt feelings and misunderstanding and all that stuff when I was out there. I mean, at that age, everybody is kind of trying to play a character <laughs> that, that you read about or you get exposed to. Well, or who you want to be, you right. know, so I want to be like Ray Capital. I want to be like Carl Beecher. I want to be Ian. Yeah, no, you're you're totally right. And I have a I have a 16 year old right now. To me, holding the ridiculous things that she says to me sometimes against her, mm-hmm. like it's weird to think that I was that age when I was out there that my daughter <laughs> is now. And it's just like I wouldn't hold a single thing against her because she's just trying to find herself, you know. Yeah. So that's why it was always so wild. You know what I mean? That um, you know, Sean sold out when he was you know, 1920 or whatever, you know what I mean? It's just like I was a kid and all those other people were kids too, you know? And it's just, it's just wild to take it like so seriously, like on like a, like a life threatening level. Yeah. You know what I mean, and it, it's just been a really, it's just a bit of a real big curiosity in my life. And, um, sometimes I almost forget it ever happened, you know, and then I'll do an interview like this and it all comes rushing back. And it's like, man, I remember we couldn't play Salt Lake City. I remember promoters calling us on the phone saying, I'm being intimidated by or, or Monster Crew or whoever, you right. know, whoever the, the crew was at the time. And I remember being like, wait, what's a crew? What are you guys talking about? You know, and then it comes out that police in these areas were treating crews like actual games, you know, because they were intimidating people and hurting them and um, destroying property and, and things like that. So it's it really is surreal because I don't know, I don't think that stuff exists anymore. I feel like... I feel like money took all that stuff away. It's like there's money in this now. You know, yeah. are, it's been monetized, so it's not dangerous anymore. I honestly never thought about it from that perspective. But it, it is interesting because it's like I definitely remember I, I tried to get into Give Them Rope, but I just didn't I, I didn't understand it. My brain couldn't comprehend it. And then functioning on patience was when I started to really, you know, dive into what it was that you guys were doing. And it was like because it was very clear in the lyrical perspective that you were sharing all those emotions that you're just talking about right now. And it, like, I mean, I, I was straight edge and I still am straight edge, but it was one of those things. Like I, I always approached it from a very, um, I, I mean, for lack of a better term, like confrontational standpoint, like, you know, you do you, I'll do me, uh, you know, I, I, as long as you're not hurting yourself, then like I'm, but it was, yeah. uh, you know, I definitely felt that emotion that you were trying to convey of just like that there needs to be balance in this, in this perspective that you're trying to share because ultimately this lifestyle that is being led, no matter what it is, whether it's straight edge veganism, you know, philosophically speaking, religiously speaking, if people look at it and they're like, oh, that doesn't look cool. Like that looks, that looks like you said, the word oppressive is totally true. And no one's going to want to do that from like a long-term perspective. If it's like, oh dude, this is like, like not only is it work, but this is like, I- I'm getting judged constantly. Like why would anybody want that? Yeah. It, it's I, I, a lot of times, you know, I compare it to like, it is kind of like a pseudo religion. You know, it's, uh, there's not a lot of differences from like, you know, an evangelical like type Christian setting, you know, being judged constantly and, and all that, you know, in, in that setting. Two things about that though. Uh, <clears throat> my buddy, Dan Askew, the guy who owns, uh, second nature records, mm-hmm. that dude's been straight edge since day one. I've never seen that dude drink in my entire life. I've never heard of cuss in my life ever. Right. And he's still straight edge and he's still vegan to this day. I mean, he, it's his thing. It's awesome, you know. Like nobody faults him. When I go out to eat with him, I'll go to vegan restaurants. I love vegan food. I love all that stuff. I, you know, it. it I don't. You know what I mean. I don't have like a hard feeling towards it. But as far as like how some people like have balance and stuff, Jess always uh, compared it like this. He says it's like a. Uh, it's like taking a beach ball and pushing it. The harder you push, if you slip once, you know, it just bursts out. You know, and it just explodes. Whereas if, you know, if you have balance, you know what I mean? You can hold it under control. It's, it's very similar like that. And I feel like, you know, Dan was very much balanced. You know what I mean? It's like he didn't X up or, you know, have a million vegan t-shirts, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't the guy in the room who entered the room and let everybody know he was vegan. 
uh, you know, those types of things, you know, whereas like I was very different. It's like, oh, I'm vegan. I'm starting a vegan this. I'm doing a vegan that. You know? <laughs> right. You know, it's like I'm militant, you know, and it was just, um, I mean, it was, I, was, I was doomed to fail from, from, from the very beginning. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so different than when someone does the same thing. I feel like I'm Christian. I'm doing this, you know, you know, like I don't know if you've seen the documentary Jesus Can. Oh, yeah. You know? yeah but they have like those kids and stuff. That's actually just here. That's like 20 minutes for me. And gosh, WBC is like 20 minutes west, you know, so I'm like right in the middle of like, um, extremists. You know, extremists. Yeah, yeah. Extremists on both ends, you know, from, uh, you know, from the evangelical world, but those kids are doing the same thing. You know what I mean? They're just pushing it so far, you know what I mean? And like, I just really hope somebody will do the documentary follow up to that, you know, six years after that. <laughs> I just want to see where those kids are at. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, to me, that's the interesting one. You know what I mean? It's like, I already, I already know what it, you know what I mean? Because it's like, that's what everybody does, you know, yep. when they're, when they're young and, and they, and they do things like that. So what, what was your family structure like as you were growing up? Like you, you said your mom and dad got divorced when you were, was it around 17 that they were getting divorced or was it a few years before that? It was probably a few years before that. They, um, I mean, yeah, it was, it was a good family, you know, middle-class, um, you know, suburb, uh, South Kansas City, mm-hmm. um, you know, they seemed happy, but um, there was like a point in time my dad went through a very stereotypical uh, midlife crisis, got the little convertibles. I mean, just, <laughs> just the whole thing, the right. whole thing, just a textbook, you know. You know, and his infidelity really affected me and it affected our family, like, really poorly. It made my sister mad and it made me sad because I didn't understand why, like, even at, like, I guess it started, like, their divorce lasted a very long time. They got back together. Yeah, yeah. The real divorce happened, like when my mom finally had enough. You know, so I want to say this all started when I was in seventh grade. Is uh-huh. when it first started uh, happening. So, um, are you are you are you an only child, or do you have brothers and sisters? Uh, I've got an older sister, and I've got a younger sister. So okay. I'm, the, I'm the middle child. So it just affected everybody, you know. And and to me, like he did that, it was it was like he cheated on me. You know what I mean? Because he had, you know, he had some girlfriend, and she had a son, and he was buying him like all these, you know, like toys and and games and fireworks stuff that I was told, you know, fuck you, I'm not buying that. It costs money. Those types of things. So it was like really weird to see that because it really was like he was cheating on the family because he kind of like accepted another family. So um, that caused like a huge uh, rift before us, but I was completely in skateboarding at that time. So, um, you know, me and Dan from Second Nature, I mean, we were, we were hardcore skaters. That's all we did. And at that point, I was just old enough that I had some friends that were older than me that had cars, and it was all about skating vert. That's all I did was skate vert, you know, for like those like next three years and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's a town south of uh, of Grandview called uh, <clears throat> Raymore Peculiars is the name of it. Anyways, there there's a vert ramp that a, a buddy of ours had out there, and then that's where we you know I mean that's where when we met like um, Dennis McCoy and Rick Thorne and all that skated their ramps with him and stuff. I mean that's just really rooted in not wanting to go home get out of the house you know it's like you, you get your clothes and you get the hell out of there because you don't want to hear your mom crying and you don't want to see your dad's you want to escape you want you need it <laughs> about, about your problems and stuff like that I, don't, I mean i never cried over it or anything it's just you know it was just one of those things to where you're just like i don't want to be here i'm gonna go do my own thing you know right. you're really selfish when you're about that age anyway so it really worked out you know but um but that also like led to why i got so hardcore into um straight engine stuff is because the guys i was hanging out with you know, I mean, I mean, dude, I was doing drugs when I was like 13, 14, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I was just, I just was, you know, I was dropping acid. I was drunk all the time. You know, we would do, we would skate all day and then we'd drink all night. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't even, I mean, as a kid, I wouldn't even tell my mom where, where I was, uh, you know, and just call her like three days later, just like not even come home and just be skateboarding, you know, like that, you know, and I was way too little for that. My yeah. kids, <laughs> you, you would know, kill your children. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> But that's just the way, that's just how, I mean, that's how extreme I went in that way, you know, and, and, and honestly, you know, the whole straight edge thing was swinging back the other way, but it went too far. And I remember being completely wasted on some drink called Cisco. It was just absolutely horrible stuff. Uh-huh. And, um, and uh, tripping on, uh, uh, on acid too, and just literally stepping outside of my body and seeing myself and being like, what the fuck is wrong with you? This is ridiculous. And it was the next day that, like, I just stopped hanging around with those dudes. And, um, you know, I knew what straight edge was. And I just, because the BMX guys were always straight edge. Like, Rick Thorne and 
and uh, Woody and um, Dennis McCoy. Those dudes were always straight edge. Those guys, you know, introduced us to like all that CBGB, you know, matinee type stuff. You know, they were selling us their records, you know, uh, that they bought when they were out there. So anyway, so that's how I discovered it. And, and um, you know, and I just really threw myself in, into it too much the other way, basically. I presume most of this, with all this as well, you had no passions beyond like school or sports. You were just basically like, I like skating. And then obviously music was opening up to you. Well, I was always an entrepreneur, but my parents never recognized it. And um, I love starting businesses and working businesses and forming them. I loved design and create products so much. Um, man, what, I tell you, what was some of the earlier stuff that you were doing? Cause I, I love, I definitely identify with that where I was like, I just to give you a random example of a scheme. Cause I call it a scheme because when you're in like elementary school and even junior high, like you don't have no fucking clue what you're doing. But I remember it was like, I don't know, fourth or fifth grade. I definitely got the idea to sell like whatever, you know, eight by 10 glossies of what you, that you could essentially print out from like your home <laughs> printer of you know a sports star and then have my mom sign it like oh cool here's uh ryan sandberg from the chicago cubs like and i made up i made up some elaborate story that like my dad got the autograph somewhere and i'm like oh yeah i'll sell it to you for 10 bucks and then i think it was like the third day my mom was like uh what are you asking for these autographs for she thought it was just a cute little thing but then she's then i was like oh mom i'm selling these it's amazing she's like you can't do that so were, were you hustling like that too no, I wasn't. Um, <laughs> it, it was uh, whenever I saw something. I always dreamed of like owning things, but I never had the capital or anything. Uh, so I did zines and I did skateboard zines and things like that. So I, that was the first thing that I created and started doing. Then I started uh, my own skateboard company called Reaction Skateboards, and that was actually after I had gotten into the hardcore thing. So they had artwork that had to do with hardcore and straight edge and, and stuff like that. Um, but um, it wasn't until I got serious about, I mean, I'm a wallpaper hanger by trade, so that's what I did to support my family um, when we first got married. But I remember just being like, no, I want to screen print T-shirts because I know, I know what they cost and I can do this. And, I, you know, I know these people. I can do this. And so um, those are the types of businesses, you know, I mean, I, I didn't, I always wanted to do it, but it didn't actually develop until like later. Right. And so that's when I started. Um, my wife tells a story that she came home and I was like, I bought, it, I bought a press. What? You've never mentioned this before. And I'm like, no, I've said this a million times. But the way I remember it is I, I, was, I just uh, I borrowed 200 bucks. I bought this thing off of eBay when eBay was brand new. And um, I drove out to Denver and picked it up. And then I just started hustling um, and doing it that way, you know, and, and delivering a product and stuff. And the company's just grown you know, leaps and bounds, obviously, since then, and right. uh, partnered with a lot of different people uh, over the years. So, um, you know, but I mean, it's really hard for me because I can never look at something and not figure out a way to monetize it. Right. You know what I mean? And except, I that, except your band. No, that was the problem with the band. I love doing t-shirt designs. I, I just love it. But the thing is, is like, I love to make records. I love colors of vinyl. Mm-hmm. I love that stuff. I'm a consumer. Every bit is much as, as the consumers who buy vinyl and collect it and trade it are too. And that's, that can either be really cool or can suck really bad. For me, it sucked really bad because the other guys in my band were not. Whereas if someone came to us and said, hey, we want you to play this fest, maybe it doesn't sound like that much fun, but it makes this much money. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's play this fest we don't care about because I can take that money and I can make a seven inch. You know, that's how my brain works, but theirs doesn't work like that. Their brain is like, you're making me play a fest I don't want to play. Right. And so um, a lot of the, the turmoil I was able to realize, you know, between the band, between me and Jess, you know, my anger with those guys or whatever over the years really stemmed from that. You know what I mean? It's, it wasn't until I started Blue Collar and was able to do all these things I wanted to do with the, with the band or, or whatnot, and I was able to do them and see that they were successful that, you know, I chilled out. So when we got back in 2005, it was a very different um, set up. It was not Sean dragging everybody around. Hey, we need to play this show. We need to do this. We should talk to this label or whatnot. Um, it was very different. It was like, whatever you guys decide and majority rules. It's very, it was, it was very clean. It was very simple. 
to be fair, probably because I identify with the role that you played in Coalesce was 100% the role that I played in all the bands that I was in as well, where you're going to need to have that sort of person with that drive. Because, I mean, realistically, if, it, if, you, if you didn't have that and it was sort of the you know, democracy rule sort of thing, you wouldn't have had the output that you did, in my estimation. You guys maybe would have had maybe two full lengths, maybe an EP, something like that. But, you know, sometimes, right. sometimes that sort of... Um, yeah, but, and sometimes it does, you know, but I mean, but it really was where a lot of the, the schism came from. Sure. Owen 2 definitely would not have existed. I mean, that record, I mean, there's a lot of good stuff on that record that we still like, but I mean, that record, we had already broken up and we had right. signed a contract and we had received money. So it was very, I mean, it was very clear. It's like, we owe a record. We need to go back in the studio. We went back in, not as friends to make the record. And you know, and, and some good things happened and stuff, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, who's to say what would and wouldn't happen? Yeah, you know? no, it, it's all, it's all I, hypothetical. So it's, it's pointless yeah. to say, but, um, but I, but I can absolutely say that the, uh, I feel like, I feel like the, the, the main problem in the, between the band dynamic really stemmed with me not being on the same page with them. Um, and then wanting to do very, very fun and very creative and artistic things. And me very much wanting to push the band and see how far it could go because, so the thought of being in a band is, is to me, it's just so absurd that I would be in a band, you know, because I, I don't have any musical background. I don't have, right. no, nobody played anything. I, I mean, God, I mean, my first record was only a couple of years before I started to join the band. I never was interested in it. When all my buddies, you know, had like Appetite for Destruction and and and, uh, and stuff like that, like I, I could care less, you know, to me, music served only one purpose and that was background noise for skateboard videos. Right. You know what I mean? For sure. So, so me and Dan, you know, I mean, I remember specifically having cassette tapes. We would record cassette tapes off of, um, you know, like Speed Freaks or Streets on Fire, you know, all these Santa Cruz videos, you know, uh, and that's what we would listen to. And so it, when we, you know, when iPods and stuff came around later on, I remember making the joke to Dan. is like, man, in my head, I know exactly where every top tail popping on an ollie goes. I know where every wheel slide sound and every grind and everything is, you know, because like, that's how I learned all of those songs, all the old descendant songs and, you know, and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, so it, yeah. So yeah, to me, it's just real wild that that's how it ended up, you know, but yeah. Something that I also think is, is so distinctly geographically based with the Midwest, the, the music that comes out of the Midwest. Um, I mean, obviously you could argue that every, locale has its own distinct mark. But I think that's something that's so unique about the Midwest in particular is that there is this real drive to make an impression because everybody obviously from a cultural perspective goes like, oh yeah, all the cool stuff happens in California or New York or whatever. Um, obviously you could make an argument that Chicago is also a part of that. But I definitely always got the impression that because you guys started out as a very unconventional band and you only got more unconventional as time went along, that there was some of that weird, like, we're from the Midwest, we're from, we're, you know, we're from a big city, but essentially people still have no idea where we actually are living, that there was sort of that element to be like, oh yeah, well, we're, we're making an impression. This is what, this is kind of what is happening in the Midwest, a bunch of weird shit. I, I do remember back in the day when we did play those shows, it was always so exciting to see people stare at us and have no idea what's going on. Cause you know, someone would say, Oh, it's a, it's heavy something from the cornfield. They would never really say where it from. The flyers would always try to make some like silly pun or something like that. <laughs> yeah. But I remember being like, man, we're going to fuck this stage up. It's going to be so rad. And like one of my fondest memories of the band is those early tours. Um, well, I wouldn't say so much one away, but I would say probably the ones with like Converge going down the East Coast and, you know, uh, today's the day, those tours and stuff like that. And just going and like surprising ourselves and, and surprising people, you know, because we're no one knew who we were. Yeah. And just being in the van and being like, did you see that dude that do this? Oh, my God. Did you see that girl? You know, and this guy said this and just but you know, it's just so fun. It wasn't it wasn't a chore at all. You know what I mean? We had all this energy god knows where you know and and we were doing it you know yeah uh, it's very different than the late than the later years you know like now it's just like guys i need my back pop so bad and i need some aspirin you know because it's just it's such a a dream you know like what what your body can withstand at 20 is so different than at 40 you know? <laughs> oh <laughs> sure <laughs> well 
That that's interesting too, because I definitely always, you know, even at some of the you know more uh, wild shows that you know I watch you guys play, it it there was always this element of like you know sort of battling against some level of indifference where it's like you felt this element of like you pushing against you know the crowd where it's like okay like even though you may not understand us for the first couple songs like we're still we're gonna be pummeling you like we're gonna be challenging you to hopefully come along with us like in the same way that obviously like you know a opener of a of a, of a very you know popular stand-up comedian is like okay cool well i get to do 20 minutes before the headliner I, I got to really push against this. I got to really, you know, do some, some sort of, you know, leave an impression. And I'm, yeah. I'm sure there's elements of that within your guys's, you know, like, like you said, it wasn't a chore. It was just something you guys did. Oh yeah. You were so pumped. Absolutely. Yeah. We were just so pumped to get out there, you know? Yeah. Um, and even that last tour, there's a tour we just did. Who was that with? Oh, Harvey Milk. That tour blew our minds. Uh, we had no idea what to expect with them. And I'm just so in love with those guys. They, they brought that energy out of us again, like in recent years, you know, and they're older guys too, you know, and they're very mellow and they're very different. But when they're on stage, I mean, there's magic happening on stage with those guys, you know, when I listen to the records, I don't think that same magic necessarily, like, I don't think you can tell it's there on the records, but when you see it live, it is something else. And that was like such a cool thing because like, I'm so old and jaded that I'm like, no, I'll never, you know, I've, I've, I've discovered the bands I'm going to discover that are going to be my favorites. Or, or whatever, you know what I mean? It's like, I don't actively go out listening to music. But when we went to them, I was just like, I need to buy every single one of this band's records, and I haven't felt that way since like, I was a kid, you know? Um, and that was like a real big surprise, I think, for me, too, because, you know, we toured with all sorts of bands. We toured with, God, we toured with tons of bands, you know? We played all sorts of festivals, you know, uh, where, like, huge bands played, you know, great bands, um, you know, underground band, bands and stuff, but nothing ever hit us like that, so... Um, I always thought that that was really interesting too. You know, like there was, there's just definitely something going on with those guys. They're from the Midwest as well, right? I don't know. I don't. For some reason, I was even thinking the Midwest or. Yeah, I don't think they're maybe Ohio. The bassist is like a chef in Brooklyn, and the drummer I think is from somewhere else because he's like the backup drummer for Dinosaur Junior. Oh, that's right. That's right. Oh yeah, they're originally from Georgia, though I think. Okay, that that would make sense. When like like you were mentioning, when you uh, obviously since there was never any uh, idea that Coalesce was going to be a self sufficient band and you know like make a living out of it. When in the duration of the band did you obviously decide to start a family? And then how did and then Blue Collar Distro obviously was born of you just hustling and continually screen printing as that kind of all went along. But yeah, when did all when did all that stuff kind of come into play? Well, I think I think going back to like you know from my family unit, I just I I always wanted a family. I just I knew I wanted a family. Every girl I dated, I wasn't looking for a girlfriend. I was looking for that you know kind of future wife, and it's this just the way I was built. And I met Chayla at actually at a cola show in Wichita. We just went to Wichita, and she just happened to be there because one of the opening bands. She was friends with one of the opening bands um, singers or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, and she was not interested in Coalesce at all, which was I was like, all right, this is the one for me. You know what I mean? This <laughs> one, this one will, will will keep me in my place. Um, and we got married really early, so like we, I mean, really towards the beginning of the band. Um, you know, I mean, the band was together and broke up so much. It's not like I mean, looking back now, seeing how it all panned out. Back then, it's like I thought you know, when the band ended, it was the end of the world for me at any point. So I was just, I was trying to move on with other stuff. You know, I mean, I always wanted, you know, always hope Jess would call me and be like, we're doing it again, you know, but I was moving on with my life too. So I got married while the band was still together. It broke up immediately. And after we got married, mm-hmm. there was, you know, we were on hiatus and we just kind of, you know, went back and forth. So, so really I've been married for like almost all of the time of the band. Yeah. What, what? So, what? What age did you get married? Um, I got married at I was nineteen or twenty. Damn, dude, that that is a very Midwest uh, belief. Yeah, for real. So, yeah, yeah, we're still still happily married. We've got four kids. You know, we got two boys and two uh, teenage uh, daughters. And you're doing it's it. Just, it's, yeah, yeah. It was just meant to be. But yeah, but I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it worked against each other. You know. So I mean, there was a. And they didn't, and the other guys at the band didn't understand. So, like, I was like, look, I can't go because, you know, I can't go work for no money because I have to pay for, you know, things like food. You know, I have kids now, you know, or whatever. I don't think the band members 
understood that. But when we got back together and then they had kids, then it was, it was unspoken, but they understood because they were asking for the same things I was asking for, uh, in the beginning. And so, um, so that's really how we booked our tours, you know, and, and luckily after Owen two went out, we were able to get more than $50 a show, you know? Right. So, so it wasn't unreasonable to be like, Hey, we can go on tour for a week and make the same amount of money. We would have at our jobs. We're not money ahead, but we got to go out for a week. And that, that's really what we did. I mean, that's, that's really, you know, what we, what we, um, yeah, the, sort, there, there, the, yeah, there was a, there was a function behind the design. Yeah, well, yeah, and, and really it was just like, you know, if someone asked us to go out with them, we were very clear and upfront. We need this much because this many people, you know, there's not four people we're supporting with this money. There's over 12. So, you know, it's like we this, this is the way it is, and if you can't afford that, then we're sorry and, and good luck. Uh, you know, a lot of bands were really gracious, you know. I'd say probably the most gracious band we've ever worked with is Converge, super gracious to us. You know, it was really nice to, you know, for bands like that to let us experience, you know, those types of shows, you know, yeah. with them. You know, uh, years later, you know, uh, being able to play California with a packed house, you know, those those types of things. So Yeah. Uh, well, and yeah. it, it, it's cool, too, because you, you come at it from the perspective, too, where it's like so many people that obviously do the, the whole band thing have that as being such a central focus of their lives. Which, you know, it should be, and that's obviously, you know, an important part. But then when the band comes to, maybe not even a screeching halt, but when the band starts to, you know, wind down where it's like, okay, it's not self-sufficient anymore and I have to look for other things to do, becomes like maybe, you know, a year or two transition time of just like, what the fuck do I do now? Yeah. Um, but you never had to experience that because you were busy building stuff in, you know, uh, in, in har did. harmony with the band. I did, I did it at the beginning. I did it at the beginning because, like, uh, you know, like the first major breakup, like right when I first got married, Eric was courting us. You know, I mean, it was just such a, it was just such a cool thing that was happening in my life, and it was abruptly ended. And so, and I, there's a, I actually tell the story in this uh, documentary called Twenty Seven Musicians. I think it's called. It's a documentary about Kansas City music scene and different people, but they. You don't, they don't use the names of any of the people, but I'm, I'm in it on a couple spots. But the need to create and make something was so was so hard that when we were living uh, in inner city, Kansas City at the time, during that first breakup, I had absolutely nothing to, to do. And I took up origami of all things just, just to have something to, to create and get my mind focused on something because I was just driving nuts. I was pacing the floor. I didn't know what to do. I'd get mad at people because, you know, they were taking, they took my band away from me or, or whatever, you know what I mean? And that's what I ended up doing. And, but so it took, it took some time. And again, it was and after that, shortly after that is when I said, I'm just starting my own business. You know what I mean? And I'm going to pour everything into this and this new business is going to be my new band, you know, this type of thing, but I'm not going to let it define me. You know what I mean? The, the idea that, you know, I, I'm sure you remember this, you know, back in the day, you know, my name would be Sean Coalesce and Dan would be Dan Second Nature. Everyone, whatever, whoever did was their last name, you know, when people refer to people and stuff. And like, um, you know, I think I probably enjoyed that back then in the 90s. But like when it disappeared, I was just like, I don't ever want to do that again. I'm just Sean. And I just want to disappear and do my thing, you know what I mean, and be happy. And so, um, I mean, there was a transition to learn there, but once the company was in place, it was much easier. It was much easier, you know. It, it something falls apart, cool. I'm starting something new, uh, and we would just we would just move forward that way. Yeah, and so then um, as as Blue Collar Distro started to become obviously, you know, your your main your job, and as the company started mm -hmm. to grow, I I always say this to people that like when obviously they start something, you, your goal is not to become a boss. But then you have to like learn how to become, you know, a manager and all that sort of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. So absolutely. I I, I, presume, I presume that was like an absolutely awful growing pain of you growing the business. I'm sure it was. It's it's very different because because the way I wanted maybe someone in the band to respond to me and work with me is exactly how an employee is looking to me to lead them, and I didn't realize that at first. And it it, it is. It's a, a it's it's a learning curve. You know, and, and learning how to not get angry, learning how to vet people, never hire your friends, um, know who to bring in as a partner of your company and not just a hourly. Because, you know, 
it's always important, you know, when you, it's always better to be partners with someone than competitors. Um, and so we just have a very, we have a lot of philosophies, you know, here. Um, you know, I'm now partners with, uh, uh, with a guy named Burton Parker and um, Jim David, who played uh, bass for the anniversary. And uh, we've had partners that we've bought out over the years and stuff like that as, you know, as they moved off, it made more sense for us to have it. But um, yeah, taxes, geez. I mean, we audited one year. That was like one of the worst experiences I ever had. <laughs> one, of, one of the most, you know, one of the most educational experiences ever, you know. So, um, but, um, but yeah, you know, like on a daily basis, you know, and, and, and it's true that when, you know, when you hear like a boss say, look, you know, I may not be digging the ditch, but I'm mentally exhausted from looking 10 steps down the road, you know what I mean, and making sure that you have a ditch to dig. And that's very much what it's like here, and especially as it's grown more and we're doing bigger and bigger projects. So, well, yeah, that's which which is awesome that you've been able to like been there since the start, but then be able to watch it, you know, permeate and grow, and obviously get get all that horrible stuff thrown at you in order to be like, okay, well, now I know how to do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I tell you, you know, and and I tell you that the, the best teaching or the best education is losing money. You know, you lose. <laughs> You lose a thousand dollars, you will never make that mistake again. Yeah. You lose five hundred dollars, you will never make that mistake again. Someone telling you something oh isn't as effective as seeing your bank account, you know, and not being able to do payroll or something like that. Not that we've ever had that problem, but like we've you know, we've lost money over the years of not checking our UPS bill close enough, you know, not checking our weight dimensions, you know, just minutia, you know, and it's always it's always amazing how quickly you can lose 500 bucks you know, just, <laughs> just by not paying attention to one silly, you know, little thing, you know? Yeah. So, but that's why I love having partners because all three of us are looking at it. You know, we're all vetting each other all the time. We're all keeping each other accountable. Um, and to me, that's, you know, that's the best way to do it. And we are, we're also really laid back here. So, yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Well, because I, I presume you all kind of come from you know similar backgrounds in the sense. Mm-hmm. I, I do I do think that there's something there's something intrinsically and a shorthand understanding of like people that kind of are cut from the same cloth in regards to you know being creators of like independent art in some capacity. It like that DIY nature is like cliched as that term is you can immediately plug yourself into a situation just be like oh yeah yeah like I know what you're talking about you don't you yeah. don't need, you don't need to. Oh, where do I uh where do I begin to well, like I don't know, that's like punk and hardcore. I don't know, that doesn't mean anything and it's like, oh, where do I begin, you know? But when you have that yeah. level of understanding, it's easier to I guess get stuff done because there's you both have, you know, played in front of 10 people in, you know, Wichita or whatever. Sure, sure. Um the uh, the last thing I want to hit on was that you, you yeah. kind of alluded to it earlier in regards to the the notion that you know you have teenage daughters you have children that are growing up within you know w- within your uh, your supervision and you having the experiences of what you've had in regards to not only being involved in you know independent culture but you still are like you're still uh, you know a a person that is active within you know for lack of a better term like youth culture. And having those sort of like punk rock sensibilities and and all that stuff, like the is the parenting part just really kind of you know mind bending for you to be like, oh dude, like I I I, I want I need to discipline you for this, but I would have done the same exact thing and like certain levels of understanding that might not have been afforded no, to you. you never tell it. No, you can never tell your kids that that you would have done it that way. <laughs> yeah. You can never do that. You have to you have to just you know. Well, here's her. I mean, we kind of have like two families. I have a 16 and a 14 year old girl. Though we, um, and then we waited several, several years. We didn't think we were going to have any more kids. And then now we have a seven and a five year old boy. So we have two older girls and two little boys. The two older girls, um, we homeschool all four of them. Um, the two older girls are doing great. They excel. Regan, my oldest, she is um, hopelessly in love with roller derby and I'm a roller derby dad that has her twice a week in Topeka doing these bouts and, and training and stuff like that every year. And Hazel is a uh, stage makeup artist at 14. It's so weird that this is a thing. I didn't realize how important this was, but she's been recruited at 14 to work on like the main stage at, and at the Lord's art center. 
uh, from just taking like a silly little class that I paid for her to do. So like they like have their things. They're at 14 and 16. They've already planned out their lives. They know exactly who they're going to marry. You know what I mean? They, they, they've got this and they're good kids. They're not boy crazy. They got good head on their shoulders. Yeah. So they, we did a really good job with them. My boys on the other hand are total terrors. They are just absolutely bonkers. They, uh, they need constant discipline. You know what I mean? And they need tons of love too, you know? So we are just always on top of them, you know? And it's, it's like, it's like everyone is parenting the boys sometimes, you know, because they're so, they're so full of it. And it's just such a, it's just such an interesting dynamic because I, the stuff that my boys do, my girls never did. You know what I mean? It's like my girls never pulled their pants down and, and, and peed on a, uh, you know, uh, an Earth Day parade uh, rolling by in front of them, you right. know, and decided everybody. They, these are not the things that my girls did, but these are the things that my boys do. Right. You know, I mean, they just think they're so hilarious. <laughs> It's just, you know, and some of the stuff they do is hilarious, but it's just so hard not to laugh at them, you right. know. You just have to be stern, you know, and just not give them an inch, you know. Yeah. Um, but I can talk to and it's just different, too, because my girls, you know, they have little DSs, and they played them, and when they were done with them, then they put them up. My boys are absolutely obsessed with Minecraft and, and Legos and building things, which is awesome, so I wanted to foster that. But something about the video game system um, – they, uh, Ozzy, you know, he's five. He would tell me this. He says, dad, I play the game so much. Sometimes I can't tell if I'm in the game or not. And that's like, I was like, what? How, how often are you playing it? They only get to play it on Saturday, but they play too much and they get too enveloped in it. And one day, uh, Ozzy and Max got in a fight and, uh, he threw the controller and smashed the TV screen. And um, I never did anything like that. Man, my dad would kill me if I busted the TV back in the day. You know what I mean? Right. But like, to me, I was almost like thankful. I was like, oh, think, you know, this is disappearing now, guys. You know, kissing goodbye. And they cried and they mourned over it for a couple weeks. But they have like come back, you know what I mean, to where, you know. So I always thought that was really interesting. I always heard people complain about video games, video games, right brain, this and that. I don't, I don't believe that. But I believe some kids just can't control like uh, how is this? Yeah, sure. they, yeah, the impulse or whatever. And my boys are two of those people, you know. And so it was just like it's just fascinating, you know, it's just how different how different they are. Your experience is also unique in regards to like you were alluding to earlier, with the idea that like you always wanted a family, and you know, since you got married at a, a very early age, relatively speaking to most people that are involved in, you know, independent music, it's like, you know, most people in independent music, they're like, once it, once they hit 30, they're like, all right, maybe I'll think about settling down. And oh, then yeah. maybe in five years, I'll have kids. So y- you definitely have a un- more unique experience because you had that vision, you know, earlier on in your life as opposed to later on. So, which I is... Can't, I can't imagine trying to keep up with a little kid at 40. You know what I mean? <laughs> At five, you know, yeah, no, but I mean, to me, it's like, it's all about the kids. You know what I mean? You know, if I follow her from a heart attack tomorrow, you know, honestly, who cares about Colas? It's like those, those kids are my legacy. You know what I mean? So, so if you look at it that way, I mean, it's, it's, they're like so important to me, you know, besides the fact that I love them so much, but you know I mean? It's like, so I want to put everything into them. I want them to do cool stuff. You know, I want them to, you know, I don't want them to look at things I don't want them to color inside the lines and do all those things, but I also want them to know when to be cool and when to cut loose. <laughs> because yeah. right now they don't know how to cut loose, you know. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, and honestly, it's the hardest thing in the world. Parenting is like the worst because you you have no clue if what you're doing is right or wrong. You know what I mean? And like, and you know, Reagan gets in a fight with us or something. She's mad at us. She'll let us know what we did wrong. <laughs> Right. You know, right. yeah, and it's like, oh man, that hurts so bad. You have no idea how much that things, because you know, we had no clue. I mean, we were so young, you know. And right. even looking at our pictures, I'm just like, dude, who would have sent, who let us take those babies home? We're like babies ourselves. Yeah, you know, just looking at the pictures of us, it's just too young, you know. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, I, I think that's. I mean, that's a very sweet notion in regards to, like, like you said, because like, people always reflect on you know, legacy, like once you, once you hit a certain age, there's definitely that element of like, Oh, what, what impact have I made even on a, on a small scale? But then, yeah, like it's not, you're not going to reflect on like, rad, I put out, 
seven LPs and a few, you know, yeah. EPs, you'd be like, no, like I have these I did colored vinyl. I did this record on colored vinyl with a hand number this. Who cares? Right. It's on eBay for a dollar. You know, so it's like, yeah, you know, it's right. You know, and I, I feel like anybody in a band, like a singer, or someone who's really pushing their band, if they say they don't think like that, it, to some degree, I think they're, I think they're lying because, because I mean, you are building this thing, and man, it is, it is so cool. To, like a band, it's so cool to see the lives you touch, you know, the people who contact you, oh, your band got me through high school. I'm sure every every band member's heard that from someone and whatnot, you know, and it feels cool. And you, you think you've created something and, and and I think every band member should be proud of that and stuff. But but when it gets down to it, I've I'm in the unique position that my my band has it well it's not unique, but I'm in the positions where my band hasn't put in anything out. So when someone mentions Coalesce, and so, you know, more often than not, you hear Coalesce, who's Coalesce? Right. You know what I mean? So it's been long enough. It's been the generation, you know, we haven't been around for those other generations, you know, where people think of us as an old band or something like that. So you see, like, how fleeting that is. Yeah. Now, there's always the hope that someone will discover you later on down the road, you know, like they did. Oh, like some of these awesome documentaries that are coming out where they find these amazing bands that kicked so much ass but didn't get major recognition back in the day. Yeah. Uh, what, the Sugar Man, and then also... Death. Uh, Death, yeah, yeah, the band called Death. Those, I mean, that would be, like, the coolest thing, too. I think for, I think any band would be so stoked on, to have that happen to them, too. But it's not a reality. It's like, that's like a lottery right. drop. You know what I mean? So, like, like, your legacy really is your kids. You know what I mean? Um, and it's always interesting, because I always tell my dad that. It's like, hey, you want to see your boys, right? You know, this, this is it. He's like, uh, yeah, okay. You know, it's like, what, really? It's like, this is, this is it. They want to play football. They want to do the things that I could could have cared less about as a kid, you know, <laughs> with you and stuff, you know. So um, yeah. sometimes, sometimes dudes just need reminding of that too. I think. You know, so. Yeah. No. No. That's awesome. Well, I really appreciate you hanging out, Sean, and thank you for uh, sure. for walking me through all that and all the different mentalities. I, I wasn't expecting you to be closed off at all, but you were you were very open, and I appreciate. It. Oh, no problem. So there you have it. That is my conversation with Sean. Thank you for listening. Like I said, that at the very end, when he was talking about his his legacy, you know, like what he is proud of, and he's like, Coalesce doesn't mean shit. It's like my kids. And it's like for a person, no matter at what stage in your life, to kind of realize that the, the finite nature of the creative output that we, we put in there, it's awesome, and it's so cool that people can use that as a touchstone. Uh, but there's obviously a lot of other tangible things that you can do in your life that are just so... Uh, rewarding for lack of a better term and of course I'm my perception is skewed because I myself am a three-year-old son and you know if the podcast and all the bands I played in and all the music industry stuff I've done goes away and I have my son I'm like that's successful <laughs> so it was just a, a really uh, cool thing to hear from a person to just you know like Sean to put that out there and so it was cool anyways the producer and confidant and friend of the show Tom Richfield as always, he does a stellar job, and I, I, I'm paying him now, and that feels so good to just give him give him some money. Here, dude, here's some here's some eternal gratitude in the form of financial compensation. So, because of you, the listener, I am able to do that, and also my job and my wife agreeing to let me do that. So, <laughs> anyways, uh, until next week, be safe, everybody. And here's a little tease: we have uh, no theme month during July. Uh, but there is some really, really exciting things coming up for the show. There's some great stuff, not only the guests, but some, some business, behind-the-scenes stuff that's happening. So I can't wait to announce it to all of you. It'll be exciting. But, uh, yeah, the guest next week is Sasha Dunnable. Dunnable? Dunnable? Yeah. From I always do that. I have to say a person's last name like ten times before I feel like I have a grasp at it. But uh, Sasha plays in a band called Intronaut, and he also does his own guitar company. I'm doing a ton of interviews today at Warp Tour, so... Who knows what you'll get? You'll get some cool stuff. I know that for sure. So anyways, until next week, be safe, everybody.